when I, uh, you know, I always joke about the, the Presbyterians because, again, when I, in my Baptist church, you'd walk in and the pastor would say, I think the Lord has a message for you to give this morning. I hope you're ready. And in the Presbyterian church, they give you a schedule that goes basically for the next 10 years. <laughs> so, so at least I've had, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciated it until I, I realized uh, what the parable is that I would be doing this morning. And my first thought, if I was a conspiratorialist, was that Dick and Doug were passing the buck and, and letting the rookie take the heat on this particular parable. And I, I read it, and I uh, read it again, and I saw, started thinking about it, meditating on it. And after three days of doing that, I realized I didn't understand this parable at all. And fortunately, this was back far enough that I didn't panic that I had to do this the next day or in two days. But it did make me go to God and say, I don't understand this. I thought I did, but I, I, I don't. Help me to understand it. And um, so I'm going to read uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and you can follow along with me. It's on page four of your bulletin says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham very far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Well, Dana and I, uh, not too long ago, uh, went to see uh, Atonement, 
which is a very interesting movie, and, and don't worry. How many of you have seen it? Okay, how many of you want to see it? Okay, I'm not going to blow it. I'm not going to reveal the, the, uh, anything that will ruin it for you, but it's very clear from the beginning of the movie that what happens is that the protagonist, a young girl, sees something, but not in context. Seeing it out of context, she misinterprets what she is seeing and then proceeds to act on her original misinterpretation with disastrous results. That's a lesson for me in uh, the parable. so I want to um, uh, back into this parable uh, and first tell you <clears throat> that there are three reasons for the parables, and this is why I want to be very careful. First reason is that it was a judgment on the Pharisees for being hard-hearted. Before this, Jesus would talk plainly and teach plainly uh, his message of the kingdom of heaven. But after the Pharisees were so hard-hearted in seeing his miracles, listening to his teaching, and yet rejecting him, and not only rejecting him, but ascribing to him terrible motives, and that the source of his power was from Satan, not from God. And as a judgment on the Pharisees, he began to teach in parables. The second reason for the parables is that it was a judgment on the people because of their fickleness. Uh, For example, in one chapter in Luke, Jesus is in his hometown and the people are amazed at what he says. Then they become angry at what he says. And then they want to throw him off the cliff all in the same day. Uh, They hear his words and instead of taking them in humbly, they say, well, show us this trick and show us that trick. So they're fickle. It's a judgment on the people. And the third characteristic of the parables is that they were meant not to be understood. (laughs) Did that catch you by surprise? Jesus said that the parables contain the secrets of the kingdom of heaven and that they are meant to be done in such a way that those who are not part of the kingdom of heaven cannot understand the parables. So that gives me a lot of comfort in talking about this parable, which I realized that I didn't understand. So I'm going to back into it by making sure that I don't make the mistake that the young protagonist made in atonement. I'm going to put it in context. That's what I had to go back and do and go back and read several chapters ahead of Luke uh, 16 so I could understand what, in fact, was going on in this parable. Now, by this time, in just the previous chapter, uh, Luke had given the following parables, the parable of the lost sheep in chapter 15, verses 1 to 7 where he talked about leaving the 99 sheep and going off to find the one lost sheep. Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees because they were angry with him for eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. 
He talked about the parable of the lost coin right after that at verses 8 and 10 of Luke 15. The woman sweeps her whole house clean to find one coin, uh, although she had many others. And then when she found it, she celebrated. There was the parable of the prodigal son, which you all know, and which Dick, I mean, Doug calls the parable of the three hearts, probably the most famous parable in the New Testament. That's at chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And then there was that great parable of the shrewd manager that Dick discussed about three weeks ago or four weeks ago, where the issue was using your resources uh, to make friends for God. Each of these parables has Jesus rebuking the Pharisees for their hard-heartedness. They are devoid of concern for the lost, and and they are suffering, and they are concerned about two things. One, their their own religious traditions, and two, their status within the Jewish community. So who were the Pharisees? They started after the great uh, Maccabean revolt in 165 when the Greeks overcame Israel. And out of uh, this, there was a movement of men who said, you know, every time we face problems, it's because we have departed from the word of God. Every time we were exiled is because we did not obey the word of God. We want to be that group of men who are known for obeying the word of God and helping our Jewish community obey the word of God so we won't face uh, these problems again. Uh, At Jesus' time, there were three very influential groups in his Jewish society, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And the the, uh, Pharisees were the smallest but they were the most vocal and they were the most influential. They were the ones who, uh, along with others in the tradition, would make rule upon rule upon rule to make sure that they wouldn't depart from the commandments in the Old Testament. But in doing so, they actually left aside the commandments of God and began to follow their own traditions to the point that they elevated their traditions to the status of being command to being commandments of God. So, for example, if it says um, uh, on the Sabbath, you shall not labor, you shall honor the Lord on the Sabbath commandment of God. And the, the Pharisees came up with all these rules about what it, how to make sure that you don't violate the Sabbath. And they would have rules like what's work and they would have myriads of interpretations or I should say other rules about not working. So for example you could carry a cup of water across your kitchen and that was not work. But more than a cup of water or going the cup of water further than the length of your kitchen was work. If a person was injured on the Sabbath, if you laid them down that was not work. If you set the bone that was work. And they had all these things and that's what they began to focus on not the idea of honoring God on the Sabbath. And so the, and before we, um, before we get too hard on the Pharisees, and it, it has become a pejorative term for us, in, in Jewish society at the time that Jesus was, they were a very esteemed group. I mean, people would look at them and say, this guy really loves God. How do you know that? Look at these rules that he obeys. I can't do that. 
you got to love God to have all these rules. So they were a very esteemed group, whereas in our day, we look on it as a pejorative term. But if you, if you look at it, many of us at times have acted like Pharisees. Have you not taken a commandment of God and your conviction about what it looks like to obey it and then judge somebody else by not meeting your conviction? For example, uh, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, for me, one of the ways I honor that is I don't smoke. But for me to raise my conviction to the level of a commandment and then then look at somebody and say, he smokes. (laughs) He doesn't love God. But of course, probably none of you have done that. Or take the same commandment. You know, the, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you see someone with, and so you're convinced that the way you do that is you don't put tattoos on your body. And then a young person comes along with tattoos from the wrist to the shoulder, and you look at them and say, you know, that person really doesn't understand what it means to be a Christian. Tisk, tisk, tisk. Well, I mean, that's basically one of the things the Pharisees did. Okay? Um, so they were the self-appointed morals police of Israel. They were, you know, that commercial with the woman who would walk into your house with the white glove and she'd run it along your... That's what that's what they did. Have you ever done? No, no, I know you haven't done that, so I won't even ask. So I'm I said I, I need to back into this parable. I understand the context now better that the Pharisees are being rebuked because of their failure to to take the word of God and honor it as opposed to their own traditions. But as I looked at this parable, I originally thought it was about heaven and hell. It's not about heaven and hell because the purpose of this parable is not to teach the Pharisees that heaven and hell existed. They were thoroughly convinced of this. Now, people today may believe that there's no heaven or no hell, but that was not the case in the Pharisees' time. They absolutely believed that there was a heaven and a hell. They just knew that they were going to heaven and that everybody else was going to hell. But they didn't question that the two places existed. So it's not a question. It's not a parable teaching whether heaven and hell exists. It's not a it's not a parable about material wealth and poverty. You can't draw any conclusions from that other than that rich people are going to go to hell and poor people are going to go to heaven. And so the way you get into heaven is to make sure you give away all your money. And it's probably good to have some sores. Well, that's a wrong reading of of the parable, too. And it's not a parable about how to be saved. You cannot look at this parable and and understand how one receives the salvation of God. So I've excluded what it's I've, I've helped myself figure out what it's not about. So let's take a moment and look at Lazarus uh, and just look at how he's described in this parable. I mean, the rich man. He's dressed in purple uh, and fine linen. He lived uh, in luxury. Um, He was at the top of the social order. And look at Lazarus. He was laid at the rich man's gate. He couldn't even crawl there under his own power. He's longing to eat crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He's covered with sores and even dogs come. He's so helpless that he can't shoo the dogs away when they come and lick his sores. 
Um, and he's at the bottom of the social order. And so if you were just to stop at verse 21, at, at verse 21, and you had a choice, and you didn't know anything that happened after verse 21, and you were given the chance to be the rich man or Lazarus, who would you choose? Well, hands down, all of us are going for the rich man. Nobody wants to be the beggar with sores that dog licks at somebody's gate. That's an easy decision. So let's look at this and look at your first um, point on your bulletin there in the outline that's on whatever the next page is. Let me find it. It's on page five. Um, spiritual riches, spiritual riches are given to prepare the heart to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. Spiritual riches are given to prepare the heart to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. We look at the, 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 the wealth of the Pharisees uh, because the Pharisees, when they heard this parable, they knew that Jesus was talking about them. They didn't like this parable. They might not have understood at all, but they sure didn't like this comparison. Um, they had great spiritual wealth. They had the patriarchs. They had the Old Testament. They had the law given through Moses. They had the prophets. They had the Psalms, all the writings of the Old Testament. They had the promises of God, the covenant of God. In terms of spiritual wealth, they were uh, the Bill Gates of the day, as all Jews could be described at the time, because of the spiritual heritage they enjoyed. And in many ways, you and I are in the same state of spiritual wealth. Um, all people in the United States, whether or not they're Christians, can go to almost any hotel, even the ones that rent the room by the hour, and find a Gideon's Bible in it. Uh, there are churches throughout the country. There are bookstores filled with Christian literature. Radio, you can turn on, on the radio and find some Christian program almost any hour of the day. You can go on the internet and type in salvation or Christianity or what is the gospel and bam, 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 sites just come up on your, on your screen. You can attend churches where you see the power of God at work on a regular basis. You can hear wonderful testimonies like Susan gave just a minute ago. Um, all of that is around us. We are spiritually richer than even the Pharisees or the Jews at the time of Jesus because they didn't yet have the gospel fully explained, the New Testament not having yet been written. This Pharisee was dressed in purple, which means it's a, it's a royal color. It not only underscores his wealth, but his status in society. And he wore fine linen. And the linen that is described as fine linen is interesting because it's the, it's the term that is used to describe some of the uh, trappings in the tabernacle. The curtains are twisted with fine linen. Some of the other parts are made with fine linen. The robes of the high priest, the ephod, is made of fine linen. 
So this linen, when he talks about purple and fine linen, he's talking about a person with exceptional spiritual status or religious status in Jewish society. We would call him an, a ruling elder in a church today or a preaching elder in a church today. It is priest's clothing, um, and it is representative of the spiritual priesthood of the Jewish people. Um, we all, as, as people in the United States, have all these riches available to us, whether or not we are Christians, because we can find out the gospel Almost at any time we want, you have a good chance of walking around and asking somebody, can you tell me what the gospel is? Before, the, before an hour goes out, you'll find one person who can tell you what the gospel is. And if one is in a church setting, Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So the spiritual riches that the Pharisees, all of the Jewish people had been given, but the Pharisees in particular, because they claimed to recognize and value the spiritual riches, was to prepare their hearts to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they had so misused the spiritual riches that they had, and while giving a nod to those riches, set up traditions that were contrary to the riches, to the point that when Messiah came to him, to them, one, they did not recognize him, and two, they hated him. The riches which were supposed to prepare their hearts to receive the gospel had by their traditions so worked that they became the enemies of the God they claimed to serve. So when we look at the second, well, let me let me ask you a question. Have you received the salvation of Jesus Christ yourself? I mean, you some come to church, you read the Bible, you've heard testimonies. Do you think? Other people need salvation, but not you. Is it the kind of thing where you hear a message and you say, man, I just wish my brother-in-law was here to hear this. I wish my neighbor down the hall could hear this sermon. Or do you hear a sermon and say, my goodness, that's me. Do you look for how it applies to your own life? Do you understand and appreciate your spiritual blessings? Well, that leads to the next point in this parable, and that's that salvation cannot be presumed or earned. The Pharisees were part of the Jewish nation, and they were God's chosen people. The fact that they were chosen made them presumptuous as well as careless. Because they were chosen... They didn't feel that there was much they could do to gain the disapproval of God that is to be separated from God and sent to hell rather than heaven because they were the chosen people. The fact of God's riches to them caused them to be not grateful but presumptuous. 
their spiritual luxury did not enrich them. It actually impoverished them. The Pharisees assumed they were saved because of the richness of their spiritual heritage and because of their status as Jews. Remember the story of Nicodemus, one of these Pharisees who came to Jesus at night, probably because he didn't want to be seen in open association with Jesus. And he, and he, but he, at least he's coming with honest inquiry. And he basically wants to understand what Jesus is talking about, about the salvation. He's, you know, I'm a Jew. And not only that, I'm a Pharisee. That is, I'm a Jew. I'm a, I'm a top Jew. I'm not just a Jew. I'm a top Jew. And Jesus says to him, unless a man is born again, he cannot be saved. And Nicodemus says, how can this be? What do you mean? Shall a man climb into his mother's womb again? I mean, he didn't get it. And to Nicodemus, Jesus said, how, uh, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things. It was a matter of amazement to Jesus Christ that with all the spiritual heritage that Nicodemus had, he did not understand that he was a sinner who needed to be saved by grace. Every time he took an animal to be sacrificed to the high priest and laid his hand on that animal and then see the animal slain by his hand and then put on the altar, didn't he understand the reason he was doing that was because he was a sinner and that only by the shedding of blood could there be a reconciliation between him and God. And did he really believe that it was just the act of killing the sheep? He could look in his own heart and see, see how he was. So one of the problems that the Pharisees face is that the richness of God led to presumption on their part. Their security as members of the chosen people led to carelessness. There's a modern presumption today uh, that one is saved because of one's church affiliation. Maybe you have uh, at some point attempted to talk to somebody about Jesus Christ and ask them, well, are you saved? And they say, well, I go to such and such a church. And maybe you have, in response to a question, said the same thing yourself. Well, my father's a, my father's a minister. Um, my mother sings in the church choir. Or, you know, my parents are Christians. Or maybe you've done the other, the other thing. Um, you have recognized that you, you are saved by, by grace that you don't deserve, you haven't earned God's salvation, but now having it, you presume to work to deserve it. You know, I can deserve God's love if I do A, B, and C. I know I'm saved by grace, but if I can do A, B, and C, God will really love me. I, I will really be pleasing in his sight. It's just as if um, I owed uh, a man $50 million and he came to me and said, Bill, there's no way you can repay this debt. 
I waive it entirely. I'm not reducing it. I'm waiving it entirely. The debt is not paid. And I go, this is great news. Because, <laughs> I mean, on my salary, it's never going to happen anyway. And then I go along with that for a while. But then at a certain point, I say, you know, I am so grateful for him waiving the debt. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to get a piggy bank. And I'm going to I'm going to pay him back and I'm going to miss a meal once a week. And and the money that I would use for that meal, I'm going to put in my piggy bank. Well, after a while, you've got eighteen dollars in your piggy bank, well short of the fifty million dollars. And so you say, well, I'm going to miss three meals a week. And, and, and then after six months, you now have $180 in the piggy bank. But you look at the, you look at the person next to you and you see they don't have a piggy bank. And you begin to feel that guy really doesn't understand what it means to be a Christian. Look at my piggy bank. I have it and I polish it every morning. I'm putting my money in it and I set it right out on the table so that when he comes by my house, he can see the piggy bank. And he can say to me, Bill, what is that? That's a piggy bank. Why do you have a piggy bank? Because I'm deserving God's love. Why don't you have a piggy bank? Do you do you do that with God? Thinking that if you work harder, that you can somehow gain the approval that he says he's already given to you freely in his son. Isn't it silly when you think of it that way? But don't we do that? So are you desperately trying to earn what can never be earned? Or desperately trying to deserve what you will never, ever deserve? When God simply asks you to receive it, enjoy it, and share it. Receive, enjoy, and share. Don't try to press pennies into God's hands or pouring thimblefuls of water in the ocean to try to keep it full. Well, that leads to my next point, and that is that spiritual riches are meant to be shared. Let me give you an overarching principle that applies to each of the three points that I want to make today. And one is we are accountable to God for receiving his salvation. Point number one, we are accountable to God for receiving it. I I know sometimes the gospel is presented as though it were an invitation, an offer. It is not. It's a command. Jesus says, repent and be saved. Yes, it's an offer, but it is at heart a command. We are commanded to receive the gospel. We are commanded to worship God. So the one overarching principle, we are accountable to God for receiving his salvation. And secondly, we are accountable to God for sharing the gospel of his salvation with others. So spiritual riches are meant to be shared. And the more they are shared, the more you value your own salvation. The more you can go to someone like uh, what Susan is, is doing with uh, young girls who have run away and are lost, the more Susan can say, 
I was lost. I've been there. And God lifted me out of my state and gave me his love through Jesus Christ. He found me. And that God is available to you. The more you share with others, the richer your own salvation becomes. And rather than hoard your spiritual wealth, you share it. And if you do hoard it, it becomes useless and valueless to you. That's what happened to the Pharisees. When you look at this parable, Lazarus is mentioned a, a bit, but the focus is on the is on the rich man. The man who had all the spiritual advantages. Let me tell you, I think this is not an allegory. It's a parable. But when reading the parable, I was really struck by the description of Lazarus as wanting the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, because it reminded me of Jesus's encounter with the Canaanite woman. Now, the Canaanite was outside the covenant of Israel. She's a Gentile. And she wants healing. And, and, and Jesus says something to her that he has not come to share the food of Israel with puppies or dogs. And she said, but even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus looked at this woman. And he said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. He was amazed and his heart was uplifted. And I suggest to you, Lazarus is the Gentile. Um, if he's not the Gentile, he is definitely the, the, the reject. He has sores on his body. That's particular significance to a Jewish person at that time. Because open sores or running sores meant that the person had to be isolated from the community could not participate in the in the feast days or tabernacles until they were clean because the running sores meant that they were probably infectious. They were separated from the community of faith. In the case of a leper, they had to go through town and shout, unclean, unclean. So this suggests that if this person is not a Gentile, that is outside by the Pharisees' mind, the covenant community. If he is in the covenant community, that is a Jew, he is still outside because of his source. He is not part. And so here, when we share our, our salvation, you and I are called upon to share it with people inside the covenant community as well as people outside the covenant community. We we have to share it with the runaways, even if they don't look right to us. Maybe they don't smell with that Eve Arden smell. Their clothes are not right. They got tattoos out the yin yang. And, and, and if your thought is when they get cleaned up. I will share the gospel with them. You have misunderstood the gospel. So the more you share, the more you value your own salvation. And the more you value your own salvation, the more you share the spiritual riches that you have in Christ.
How are you sharing your spiritual riches with others? Are you um, waiting for them to be a little right before you share with them, get, get their acts cleaned up, stop swearing? Have you ever said this? I, I've, I've heard so many guys say this to me. I'm going to come to church, but I've got to get my act together first. I've got to clean up some part of my life. And I try to say to them, the church is for people whose acts are not cleaned up and who are dirty. I've just got on clean clothes through Christ, but we're all dirty and we're all messed up. So my next point is the salvation is for the helpless and the needy. Ooh, and this is the part that I would most like to avoid. Lazarus, who laid at that gate, when we read the parable, he was laid at the gate. That means he was utterly helpless. He's like the paralytic who was lowered through the roof by his friend so that Jesus could heal him. He did not have whatever it took to lay himself or walk or crawl to the rich man's gate. He had to be laid there. He is utterly helpless and needy. And friends, here is where the gospel is an offense. Because we want to believe that there's something sweet and endearing about ourselves that attracts God to save us. God looks down from heaven and he says, I just love that Billy McCurry. Look at those freckles. Have you seen a cute baby like that? I think I'm going to save him. Or maybe this guy or lady is doing social work. Or maybe he's a good lawyer helping the poor. That's why I want to save him. No. The offense of the gospel is that you and I are Lazarus. Needy and helpless. Now it just so happens that some of us may dress well and smell good, but spiritually speaking, we have running sores. And if God does not come and save us, we will not be saved. And we all we we I don't know about you, I shouldn't ascribe to you my own hang up. So I apologize for doing that. But when I would hear this I'm going, I'm basically a nice guy. Now, I know I have some issues, but when you grade on a curve, I think I'm in the, you know, the 85th percentile or higher. And then I rattle off the things I haven't done. I haven't raped anybody, haven't murdered anybody. And of course, I picked those really extreme sins. You know, I don't talk about jealousy and or greed or lust or failure to forgive or an unrepentant heart or pride. Uh, those are the things that I think that, that God is just kind of excused because, I mean, again, look at these freckles. <laughs> Jesus said, uh, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I deserve, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you see yourself as uh, basically a good person? God's kind of lucky to have you on his team. Or do you see yourself as a sinner who needs to be saved by God? 
And of course, in this parable, it so points to Jesus Christ himself. I mean, we know by looking at this parable without Jesus having to say anything that the rich man should have fed Lazarus and cleaned his sores. It wouldn't have been any big deal for him to have one of his own servants do it. Doesn't this remind you of this uh, parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus is the true rich man. Uh, You and I are the Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus is carried to the rich man's gate. And just like in the parable, it is it is Jesus who comes to us. We're not laid at his gate. Jesus seeks us out. And he gives us his riches. But not only does Jesus give his riches by coming to us and telling the gospel and telling us about the love of of Christ. But. Jesus became Lazarus for us. He exchanged his wealth for our poverty, his health for our sickness, and his life for our death. So in the parable, the rich man is in hell, and in agony he calls out to Abraham, just have Lazarus dip his finger in and put it on my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And Abraham at least answered him. But when Jesus was on the cross in our place, in our place, and he cried out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No answer. Because the father literally turned his back on Jesus so that he could turn his face to us. It says, Father Abraham, have pity on me. But Jesus did not receive the pity of God nor the mercy of God because you and I do not deserve God's mercy. What we deserve is God's wrath. But Jesus voluntarily took the wrath on himself so that we could receive everything that he has in the Father. The wealth that Jesus has is now ours. And so the Bible says that we are joint heirs with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, are so grateful for the spiritual riches that you have given us in Christ. We ask that you protect us from being presumptuous. Cause us to be mindful of our need for salvation and to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
And once we enjoy that salvation, to share it humbly, gladly with others, even as Jesus shared the gospel with us. In his name we pray. Amen.